New Life, how are we doing today? It's a new day. God's faithful still. Uh, his mercies are new for us today. I'm excited about being here at the Carney campus today. And you're probably wondering a little bit about where Pastor Jeff is. He and Pastor Chris and some of our deacons are out at the Ogallala campus because we're installing Wes and Kim Harmon as the new campus pastors in Ogallala. And we're excited about that and all that God is going to do in them and through them. I'm personally excited. Uh, this has nothing to do with the message, by the way, but uh, personally excited for Wes and Kim. They found New Life about four years ago, and it was about three and a half years ago that Wes really found the Lord and has just been on this incredible journey. And so I'm excited that they now get to go out and lead the Ogallala campus. So uh, I want to say hello to everybody that's here in Kearney, everybody that's watching online, everybody out in North Platte, including Pastor Javen. I hope the building hasn't burned down by the time I get back to, uh, to town. And, and really, even if you're a part of the Ogallala campus, but you're not able to worship in person with them today, we're happy that you're here, that you're connecting. And I'm believing that you're going to be blessed by taking some time today to connect with God. Now, we're in a teaching series called Conspiracy Theory. And we've been looking at how there are these different conspiracies uh, surrounding faith that the enemy uses to divert our attention from the truth. Our society, we are fascinated with conspiracies. We turn to conspiracies oftentimes when we don't like the truth. When we don't like the ending of the story, we want to go find our own ending. And oftentimes those are found in conspiracies. You don't like the truth, then just go find a conspiracy that offers a truth that you do prefer that you do like. But the problem with this is that the truth in and of itself is not subjective. The truth is not something that can change just simply because we want it to change. And so as I was preparing for today, I kind of asked myself this question, why are we so fascinated with conspiracies? And it really led me to believing that we're fascinated because conspiracies by themselves have some mystery and we feel like we're in on a secret if we can figure out the conspiracy and, and the truth that's really behind whatever it is we're studying. There's mystery and there's intrigue. And let's be honest, we see conspiracy theories all over. If you get on social media, you can't start scrolling through Facebook without finding some conspiracy that somebody believes. I see some, some heads shaking right now and agreeing. They're all over social media. They're all over really any media just about that we consume is going to have some form of conspiracy theory to it. A book that you read or a TV show that you watch or a movie that you go to when we still went to movies, I guess. I remember there was a movie that came out. It was called The Rock. It had Sean Connery in it and Nicolas Cage. It came out just before I went into high school. It was the summer before, and I went to it, and I loved it, and it was this, this kind of action thriller focused around these, uh, these guys that, well, they were out on Alcatraz Island just outside of San Francisco or across the bay from San Francisco, and, and part of the plot of this movie was that there were these government secrets that they had to get their hands on or that they had to protect from the bad guys, and, and long story short, Nicolas Cage, his, his character gets married in the last scene of the movie. And as he is driving off, one of the wedding gifts was some of the government secrets. And he's looking at these government secrets, and he says, Honey, uh, do you want to know who really killed JFK? And then the movie goes to credits. And it drove me crazy. 
because it got me thinking like, who really killed JFK? What does Nicolas Cage know that I don't know? Joking, okay? But seriously, it made me wonder like, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God my first question, who really killed JFK? And then I've grown in my faith and I realized that's going to be the last thing on my mind when I get to heaven. I'm going to be worshiping God. JFK might even be alongside me and then I could just ask him, who really killed you? All right? All kidding aside though, we turn to conspiracies. We turn to these these conspiracy theories when the truth doesn't satisfy us. Conspiracy theories can seem harmless and, you know, are great at stretching our imaginations. Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot. I got to tell you, it was fun when I was a classroom teacher getting to talk about the Loch Ness Monster with some of my kids. It was actually one of the books that we had to read in second grade. It was about Loch Ness Monster. And then I had this kid that he would go off and visit his family uh, in Sioux City. And there was this like riverbed that he was, co- he was convinced Bigfoot lived down there. I think it might have had to do with something his uncle was, you know, leading him to believe. But every time he went to visit his family, he'd come back. I know where Bigfoot is. All right. So apparently Sioux City, guys, there's your secret. Big, big, uh, Bigfoot's up there. But anyways, the harm comes. You know, some of these are harmless. Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, just kind of get your, your mind uh, and your imagination going. And they tend to be fairly harmless. But the harm comes when we turn to conspiracies because we don't want to face the truth. The devil, he's very much real, and he doesn't necessarily care what you believe as long as you don't believe the truth, amen? He's a liar. Satan, he's out to kill and to steal and to destroy, and one of his most destructive tactics is to cause us to question or doubt the truth. He knows that if we question the truth, if we doubt it, then we're not going to live in the freedom that God offers, Jesus had this to say about the truth in John chapter 8, verse 32. He was speaking to some of his followers and he said, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If this is true of God's word that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free as you follow Jesus, then the enemy doesn't want you to follow the truth. He doesn't want you to even know the truth. He wants you to go searching for an alternate truth. The devil knows that if we question truth, oftentimes we'll tweak And we'll twist the truth into what we want it to be. And we'll take our creation of the truth or our perspective on the truth, even though it has been distorted and it's no longer actually true. One of the most alarming aspects of our current society is how what is true to me doesn't have to necessarily be true to you. That we can look at the same topic and we can have two very different truths. One that you believe and one that I believe and, and oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, you do you, I'll do me. And whatever's true to you, that's cool. And I'll decide what's true to me. Truth, though, by its very definition is unchanging. It's objective. Truth can and should be an anchor that keeps us grounded, keeps us stable. But when we think truth is subjective, we're tossed whichever way the winds of our personal preference or society's preference are blowing. As I mentioned, believing in silly conspiracies like the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot, that's fairly harmless. However, believing in conspiracies that divert you from the truth of God's word can be incredibly destructive to you and really to anybody that you're connected to, anyone that you have influence with. If you're a parent and you have influence with your children, it can be really destructive when the enemy diverts your attention from God's truth onto some sort of false or alternative truth. 
Today we're going to take a look at the topic of sin. Apparently Pastor Jeff is like, I'm going to be out of town. Why don't you take the easy topic of sin? All right? It'll be easy. No one will be upset. No one will be hurt. All right? But we're going to look at the topic of sin and how the enemy wants you to believe anything about sin except the truth. So let's start with two things that the Bible says about sin. The Bible really needs to be our anchor. The Bible's word, God's word, is timeless. And so when we're talking about trying to find the truth in in this world of lies and conspiracies and alternate truth, we got to come back to the Bible where we know it is stable, it's unchanging, it's timeless, and it is true. So I want to take a look at two things that the Bible says about sin. Both of them are found in the book of Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For everyone has sinned. Say everyone. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And then a little bit later on in chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. If we hang on to these two truths, we, we realize that everyone sinned. That level, levels the playing field. All of us have sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Not just some of us, not just the really bad people, but we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And what do we all deserve then because of our sin? Because of our sin, we deserve death. The consequence, the wages of our sin is death. Our eternal separation from God is what we deserve. Now, based off of these two passages, we know we're all sinners, and we all deserve death. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Bringing a message of hope today while Pastor Jeff's out of town. But because this truth stings, we start to look for loopholes. We start looking for alternate truths. Because that, that hurts, and we don't like to be uncomfortable. And so we think, well, there's got to be something. There's got to be a way that I can get around that. There's got to be another, you know, there's a conspiracy that I can find that makes it so I don't have to own up to the fact that I've sinned, that I fall short of God's glorious standard, that really what I deserve is death and eternal separation from God. As soon as you go searching for a truth that will make you feel better, you're apt to start believing and taking part in one of these three sin conspiracies that we're going to go over today. So let's look at the first one, what I'm calling the conspiracy of sin interpretation. The conspiracy of sin interpretation, it starts when the Bible doesn't say what you want it to say. I like to be perfect, and so that hurts my pride a little bit when I hear that I've sinned and I fall short of God's glorious standard. So I want to interpret things maybe a little bit different way that I don't actually have to wind up deserving death. Instead of letting God's word anchor us and basing our beliefs and opinions off of what God says, we let our own beliefs and opinions skew what the Bible actually says. Rather than recognize we're made in God's image, we begin creating a false version of God. We begin creating a false version of God's word that is made in our image. We get it backwards. We're made in God's image. And then, because we don't like some of what we read in the Bible, we want to interpret it a different way than what it actually means. And we begin to create God in our own image. And we get it reversed. We read the Bible through our lens of what we want it to say. Society and And the content that we consume, they take the chief role of informing us of truth and and shaping what we believe to be true. When we buy into the sin interpretation conspiracy, 
You begin to pull Scripture out of context and fit it into whatever context you want in order to support your own views. Have you ever struggled with this? Have you ever found yourself doing this where maybe you read a passage of the Bible and it kind of challenges you in a way and so you start thinking, well, it, it can't really mean what it says it means. And we start to look for these loopholes. I struggled with this in college when I didn't, I didn't have a strong, firm foundation in God's Word. If I picked up a Bible and I started to read it, I would want to, I would want to read it through my lens of what I wanted it to say. I was not anchored in the truth of God's word, and what it did was cause me to want to manipulate God's word based on my worldview. When this happens, sin then becomes subjective, and it's only what you want it to be when you're the one deciding what is sin and what is not sin. We start interpreting sin to fit our preconceived notions and, and our beliefs when we're focused on being right more than we're focused on being righteous. Think about that for a second. Last time, maybe, husband, you got in a disagreement with your wife. How focused were you on just being right rather than being righteous and being God-honoring? Our pride leads us to this, this place of wanting to be right, wanting to be the ones in control, and allows us to start interpreting what is actually sin. The second sin conspiracy we can fall prey to is the conspiracy of sin comparison. The conspiracy of sin comparison is when we compare our sin to the sin of someone else, and we use it to make us feel better about ourselves. We use it to think, well, maybe our sin's not so bad. At least I don't do, insert whatever sin, like this person does. Then I'd be really bad. Then I would maybe deserve death, but I don't do it, all right? I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I want you to picture yourself driving down the road. You're about 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. And then all of a sudden you see the cops flashing lights behind you and you get pulled over and the cop comes up to the, to the window and is getting ready to write you a ticket and, and you say, well, but I was only 10 miles per hour over. And all of a sudden, right about that time, somebody comes flying by that you know is going at least 15 miles per hour over. What are you going to say? Well, at least I'm not going 15 over like that guy. I'm not that bad. Like you should let me off. I, I only went 10 miles an hour over. And we compare ourselves. And we're trying to just figure out who is less evil, who is less sinful. On a bit of a side note, I, I had a good friend that was a roommate of mine. He asked a cop friend of his, and he said, hey, how fast can I know, go and not get pulled over for speeding? To which the cop said, the speed limit. <laughs> and I've always held on to that because my friend Matt, and I'm going to send this link to you so you can watch this. Matt, I love it because so often we look at what can we get away with Rather than just simply, God, what can we do to honor you? Let's not focus on what it is that makes us just maybe a little less evil or a little less sinful than somebody else. And let's focus on, God, what makes me holy? What makes me more like your son? All the sin comparison conspiracy gives us is a false sense of comfort. We buy into it thinking it'll lessen our guilt or our shame but if that's how we deal with our sin, just comparing ourselves to somebody else, then all that does is mask those feelings. They're never going to go away. You'll never get rid of your shame. You'll never get rid of your guilt. I'll never get rid of my guilt if that's all I'm trying to do with my sin. And Satan will even use then the, the sin comparison conspiracy to go the opposite way. 
You might not be somebody that compares yourself to somebody else to feel better than them. You might look at somebody else and their picture-perfect profile on Instagram and think, well, man, my sin is way worse than theirs. And then he takes that shame and that guilt and just piles more and more on and exaggerates it. We sometimes compare our sin to someone that we perceive to be perfect, someone that we perceive to be holy. But if you're not comparing yourself to Jesus, okay, who is and was sinless, you're comparing yourself to some other human that, as we mentioned in Romans, has already fallen short of God's glorious standard because he's sinned. She's not perfect. But yet we try to compare ourselves to others. This idea of comparing. I want you to, whether you're at the North Platte campus, you, I want you to picture yourself stepping out onto 5th Street right in front of our building. Or if you're here at the Carney campus, we go out into the parking lot and every one of us has a baseball in our hand. Any baseball fans? Anybody like, maybe played it growing up? Okay, we got a few. Okay. And everybody's got a baseball, or if softball's your thing, all right, grab a softball if you want. And basically what we're going to do is, is we're going to try to throw this baseball as far as we can to the east. We're going to have a competition, all right? We're going to throw that baseball, each one of us, and see who can throw it the farthest. And then, naturally, we're going to start comparing ourselves. Well, man, Grant threw it like 10 yards farther than I did. I'm not as good as him. But, man, Tim, I threw it 30 yards farther than him. And we start comparing each other. We start, we really want to go do this now, don't we? Okay, I just challenged you in a way. But, but here's the deal. If this is, if this is an, an idea or a picture of God's glorious standard, we could stand here in central Nebraska and throw the baseball to the east, but God's glorious standard is to throw it into the Atlantic Ocean. No matter how far you throw it out in the parking lot or out on 5th Street or unless you're watching us from like the Atlantic coast, which you might because we're online, we're all falling hundreds of miles short of God's glorious standard. It's really pointless to sit there and decide who threw it a, you know, five feet farther than one another. And that's an idea of what happens when we start comparing each other and our sin or what we perceive to be sin. It's really pointless. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, maybe these first two really aren't a struggle for you. Maybe you haven't, you know, maybe it's your personality not to, you know, buy into this sin interpretation or sin comparison. How about this one? The third sin conspiracy the enemy loves to distract us with and distract us to get us off from the truth is this conspiracy of sin justification. This happens when we attempt to justify our sin. And we try to justify our sin out of an unhealthy response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We tell our thing, ourselves things like this. We, we look at pornography and then we say, well, it doesn't hurt anybody. Which is a lie. Anyone that's caught up in the making of that, it hurts them. And, and are you not a person? Like, it doesn't hurt you to be a part of sin? Absolutely it does. We gossip. And I don't want you to raise your hand on this one, but how many of you have ever gossiped and then said, well, I just, I need you to pray, pray for this person. I got to share a prayer request with you. And then you just gossip about somebody. Or you use foul language and then you say, well, you know, that's what I do when I get angry. And it's better than if I hurt somebody or if I broke something. And we try to justify our sin. 
If we're honest, I think we have some of our most creative moments when we're trying to justify our sin. Which one of these conspiracies do you find gets you most off track? I know my tendency is to justify. Any Enneagram, and if you don't know what the Enneagram is, don't worry about it. But for those that do, I'm an Enneagram 1, which just means I love to, somebody else is as well. So I, I, love, I love trying to be a perfectionist. And so I find myself justifying the times that I mess up. Because I want, to, I want somebody to be fooled into thinking that maybe I didn't really mess up. And so sin justification gets me, gets me often. So what do you do? Let's not stay here. Let's not stay in these conspiracies because they don't sound very hopeful. They're not necessarily the most inspiring thing to move us closer to the center of God's will for our lives. So what do you do if you've gotten caught up in one or more of these sin conspiracies? How you respond will determine whether you continue to live in deception and live in the bondage that the enemy wraps around you or live in the freedom that God is offering through his son Jesus. So here are four action steps. If you're taking notes, you're going to want to get ready. Four action steps that you can take to avoid the deception and to live in God's freedom. The first one is this. Don't try to shape God's word. Let it shape you. Going back to that first one, that sin interpretation. So often we, we look through that lens of, well, it doesn't say what I want it to say, so I'm going to, I'm going to, just, I'm going to take it out of context. I'm going to take it so that it just supports my worldview. Don't try to shape God's word. Let it shape you. John 8, we looked at verse 32 a little bit ago, but I want to give you more of that context. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. Then he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus' teachings are full of truth. So if you remain faithful to his teachings, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Notice he doesn't say here that if you continually adjust my teachings to, to match the current trends of society, he doesn't say, you know, you've got to, you've got to kind of adjust and, and change language or change the meaning to, to make it more relevant so the culture then sees its importance. He doesn't say that. Why? Because God's word, Jesus' teachings, they're timeless. And in this world of viral videos and 24-hour news cycle where everything is just so fast-paced and everything is changing, Ditch the temporary and grab onto the eternal. Let's not get so caught up in, in the here and now. Rather, let's grab onto that which is timeless, that is not changing, so that we have stability in our life. The second thing that you can do to fight off the, the conspiracies of sin is to invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Rather than have to try to justify your way out of it or make comparisons to avoid it, Invite, invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's a passage of scripture that I haven't been able to get away from for the last few months. In fact, I, I, I feel like I use it almost every time I preach because it is so powerful. In Psalm 139, it says this, and this is really inviting the conviction of the Holy Spirit, saying, God, point out in me what I need to change to be more like you. 
Point out in me those areas that I've, I've maybe tried to find an alternate truth or those areas of sin in my life. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And then here, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. When we invite this conviction, we say, point out anything in me that offends you, God. Point out the sin in my life. Show me where I'm falling short of your glorious standard. Then when we respond to that conviction, that's where we see being led down the path of everlasting life. Real quick, I want you to do an assessment of your life. What emotions do you find yourself dealing with often? You might even say it's the fruit of your life right now. One, of, one set of emotions is an indication of fruit of your sin that maybe you have not dealt with yet. Maybe you have not, you've maybe been ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit about. If you're dealing with denial, stress, anxiety, guilt, shame, if those emotions right now mark your life, those are indications that maybe you've got some sin that you've got to deal with. And this would be a perfect scripture to go to. To say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And then stop right there. And listen. And lean in. And pay attention to what God reveals to you in that moment. Right now, if, you're, if you look at your life and you're marked by things like love and joy and peace and patience, then you can take that as affirmation that you've been responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in a healthy way. Those are fruits of the Spirit. And we see those absent in our life a lot of times when we are not responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Number three, let Jesus do the justifying. We spend so much time trying to justify our sin. I'm guilty of this. We spend so much time trying to be creative and trying to figure out and trying to explain away our sin or how it's not even sin. And we try to justify. But let Jesus do the justifying. The word justify, it's a legal term that means to acquit or to declare righteous. In a spiritual sense, it means just as if I never sinned. And any justifying that we do is a waste of time. Because if we could actually justify our sin... Jesus, there was no need for him to go to the cross. If we alone could justify our own sin, then there was no reason for God to send his one and only son to die on a cross so that you and I might have our sins forgiven, so that we might have our sins justified. I love what 1 John chapter 1 says. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. How often do we try to claim we don't have sin to, to fool other people? We have the focus on if I can just fool them, then they'll know that I'm perfect. But no, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, if we confess our sins to God the Father, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So that leads us to the last part. Today, confess your mess. Let's not pretend that we're perfect, because none of us are. 
We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. We all deserve death. We all deserve being eternally separated from God. But he's made a way. He's made a way back into relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. So today, confess your mess. He's going to forgive you when you bring your heart to him. Pray that prayer. Point out anything in me that offends you, God. And let me confess it to you. So that you can... You can make it as if I've never sinned. You can justify me. The sin conspiracies we talked about today don't allow you to ever be free of your sin. The path to freedom is through confession. When you confess sin, it no longer has any power over you. So today, I encourage you, quit carrying around the weight of your sin. Quit carrying around the shame and the guilt and the frustration and the stress that comes with it. Instead, let it go. Confess it. And then, trade it for grace and forgiveness. Those things don't weigh you down. Those things allow you to live in God's freedom. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. What would happen if you took all the energy that you typically spend on interpreting, comparing, and justifying your sin, and instead spend it on humbling yourself before God and confessing your sin. What if we took all that energy that we use trying to show that we are perfect, and we use that energy instead to come to God the Father and humbly confess, God, we are not perfect. I sin, God. And I thank you that your Holy Spirit convicts me And we spend this energy confessing to God. How would your life be different? Your day in, day out, how would your life be different if you didn't have to carry around the weight of that sin? It's with that heart, with that picture in your mind, I invite you to stand. And let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word that anchors us in truth. Your word that, is, that doesn't sugarcoat our lives and our mess. God, you very clearly let us know that we sin. We've said things and we've done things or we've thought things that don't honor you and, and they've separated us from you. We haven't lived up to your standard. And that what we deserve, God, is death. We deserve to be separated from you. But God, I thank you today for your amazing grace and your forgiveness that is made available to us through your son Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on the cross. May we not be quick to try to defend our actions. May we not be quick to to worry more about our image or our reputation with the world around us. But instead, may we be quick to come to you in confession. May we not put off acting upon the conviction of the Holy Spirit. May we be obedient to the conviction of your Holy Spirit, knowing and believing, God, that when we respond to the conviction, that you're a God that's going to bring good out of that. And when we don't respond, all we're doing is delaying the good things that you have for us. So today, right now, as we 
respond to what you've been speaking to our hearts. As we take a moment to to worship you, God. May it not just be about singing. But may it be about bringing our hearts to you. If we've got something that we need to confess, if there's sin in our life that you've pointed out to us, may we confess it here in this time. May we not wait any longer. May we confess it to you so that we can live in your grace and your forgiveness. Meet with us here in this place as we draw close to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.